The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Intelligence Division then issued daily intelligence reports on January 4th, 5th, and 6th. All three of those reports said the risk of violence on January 6th would be low. And so again... There's a failure of supervisory review to make sure uh, within products and between products that there was consistency and that the language in those products really reflected the intelligence that was in the Capitol Police's possession at the time. So, you know, there's just like breakdowns all over the place. And even Farnham herself uh, has admitted in interviews that she should have given those daily intelligence products a closer look and more review. We, you know, we haven't seen as much in the interview transcripts of, of, of Donahue admitting that he should have done a better job reviewing these products, but there were clearly breakdowns. I'm Molly Reynolds, Senior Fellow at Brookings and Senior Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 17, 2023. The House's Select Committee on January 6th may have wound down its work at the end of December 2022. But questions about why law enforcement, including the U.S. Capitol Police, were unprepared for the possibility of an insurrection remain. A new report from the Project on Government Oversight shed some light on the role that dysfunction in the department's intelligence division played in leaving the force ill-equipped for what happened on that day. Lawfare's senior editor, Quinta Jurassic and I sat down with the report's author, Nick Schwellenbach, to discuss mismanagement in the intelligence division preceding January 6th, its consequences, and what's changed since. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 17th, 2023, Inside the Capitol Police's Intelligence Dysfunction. So Nick, we've invited you on today to talk about a new report entitled Insurrections Eve that focuses on the challenges that face the U.S. Capitol Police's intelligence operations in the run-up to the insurrection on January 6th. Uh, Before we talk about sort of what you found in this report, I think it would be helpful for our listeners to put it in some context. What other investigative work has been done on this issue, and what were some of the shortcomings of that work? So I won't try to be exhaustive uh, because there's quite a bit out there, but um, some of the most important work that's been done on on sort of the the law enforcement intelligence breakdowns related to January 6th uh, include, of course, the House Select Committee's uh, report, which was issued at the end of 2022, uh, from the committee chaired by Representative Benny Thompson. There's also uh, the bipartisan Senate review, which was uh, conducted jointly by the Senate Rules Committee 
as well as the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. They did a, a joint report. It was bipartisan. That came out in the in June of 2021. The Government Accountability Office uh, in February released a report on the open source uh, intelligence efforts of various uh, intelligence agencies, including this intelligence division inside of the Capitol Police. Uh, the Capitol Police Inspector General has issued a series of reports, uh, most of which are not public. I made one of these IG re- reports public last year. It had been earlier reported on by other reporters. Uh, that report was on the Civil Disturbance Unit and, and intelligence uh, inside the Capitol Police. But those are some of the more important reviews conducted that shed light on, or shed at least some light, on intelligence and law enforcement breakdowns related to January 6th. But even though this, this issue has been looked at by many different people, many different times across many different reports, I think a lot of people felt that the select committee's final report really fell short in this regard of offering the sort of more thorough, definitive, uh, cross-cutting look at those breakdowns. And one of the biggest questions is, why were there breakdowns, not only at the Capitol Police, but at the FBI and at the Department of Homeland Security, as well as some other places? Uh, why did they happen? Why, weren't, why wasn't there a really clear, prominent warning that went out across uh, many different federal law enforcement and security agencies in advance of that day? And you know, through my reporting, I've shed at least some additional new light on what was going on inside of the Capitol Police. And so what did you find about the Capitol Police? So in the two months before January 6th, you know, two months and change, uh, basically from late uh, October 2020, early November 2020, right around the time of the election, uh, the Capitol Police installed some new leaders to run its Intelligence and Interagency Coordination Division, which I'll call the Intelligence Division for short. These these new leaders, they very early on began to clash uh, with some of the analysts who were in this division. And it's not a large division. It's about a a dozen or so analysts at the time. It's, It's grown bigger since January 6th. But at the time, it was pretty small. It's sort of a, it's an interesting animal, it's not a full-on intelligence collector. They don't have informants or human sources the way the FBI has. They don't have a large, robust, you know, open source collection program like the Department of Homeland Security has. They do a little bit of open source collection. And a lot of what they do is they consume intelligence coming in from the FBI, DHS, and elsewhere. But these analysts, they're in this division, one of their main responsibilities is to prepare for demonstrations that will occur at the Capitol. And these analysts are supposed to uh, understand who's coming to the Capitol, uh, what their intentions may be, and to warn the Capitol Police writ large, including its leadership, if it seems like things are going to be really bad, uh, to help the Capitol Police prepare appropriately. So when these new leaders came on and one, uh, the new director of the division, his name was Jack Donahue. He's a former NYPD police official. 
Uh, another official was Julie Farnham, and she's still there. She came on as assistant director, and she had spent many years at the Department of Homeland Security. Early on, they had some clashes with some of the analysts who were under their supervision. They also instituted a number of changes, which uh, appear to have been well-intentioned. Uh, a big deficiency at the Capitol Police's Intelligence Division is a, a lack of a robust training program. However, the timing and the implementation of these changes along with these personality clashes really created a dysfunction within the intelligence division that appear to have hampered its ability to issue clear and consistent intelligence warnings. And I'll, I'll walk you through how that all happened if, if you want, but I'll, that's kind of the, the high level of, of my story. Yeah, so I think um, in a second, we'll come back to some questions about because Quentin and I are curious about um, sort of how you reported and researched this report. But I want to pick up on something you were just talking about, which is sort of one of the biggest themes of the report, at least to my mind, is that while, and I'm quoting here, there is no evidence of a malicious effort to sidetrack the intelligence division. The fact that the Capitol Police Intelligence Division was making a series of changes during this period when they ultimately should have been preparing for, it turns out, a possible insurrection, that really hurt their efforts. So can you talk a little bit more about sort of why they were making these other changes and what were some of the structural problems at the Capitol Police that maybe we knew about or should have known about before January 6th kind of started brewing? So prior to January 6th, a lot of people in the Capitol Police have not taken the intelligence division particularly seriously. And so when Donahue and Farnham came on, you know, they really had this mandate to come in, uh, sort of assess, you know, where the deficiencies were and try to make changes to improve the division. You know, Farnham, in her interview with the House Select Committee, you know, she called it a failing team, for instance. So one of the things they did is they started to rotate people into all these different jobs within the intelligence division that weren't necessarily within their lanes of expertise. And Donahue and his select committee interview said, we did this deliberately to really assess people's strengths and weaknesses, to know what they could do and what not to do, or didn't know how to do, basically to help them develop a training program that would be rolled out you know, in the ensuing months. However, this is a terrible time to do this. This is November and December of 2020. And this coupled with this clash between Farnham and someone, an analyst who was described as a team lead, who really would take the lead in coordinating the intelligence prior to a major demonstration, they clashed. And what, what was that clash over? So Farnham you know, and she talks about this in her select committee interview. So it's 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 no secret. And I've talked to many of these analysts m myself. Uh, they actually told a very similar story, even though they were on different sides of this dispute. So Farnham, in her very first conversation with this analyst, asked her, you know, what do you do, you know, on the intelligence division or in the intelligence division? So the analyst describes, you know, leading a group of analysts you know, supervising and coordinating the work they're doing to prepare for demonstrations. And, you know, and, the, and the, here's where the accounts diverge. The analyst says that Farnham got angry at her because she felt that the team leader was somehow taking on supervisory duties that, you know, she did not actually have. 
whereas the whereas Farnham says that the analyst was disrespectful and belligerent during this meeting, and in the wake of, in the immediate wake of that meeting, uh, Farnham removes the team lead's responsibilities in terms of coordinating um, the efforts inside the division when it came to preparing for demonstrations, and so that sort of set the stage for the next few months of distrust between many of these analysts, including that former team lead in Farnham. And when Farnham and Donahue began rotating people into different jobs, that I think really frustrated a lot of people. They felt that, hey, why am I not doing the job I know how to do during this tense time in a run-up to what may be a very intense (laughs) demonstration on January 6th? Another problem related to this was uh, Farnham and Donahue were rotating the responsibility, the lead responsibility for drafting intelligence assessments uh, for the protests that were planned on January 6th. And so there were different versions of these assessments. Um, There was one on December 16th, one on December 23rd, uh, one at the end of December, and then another one on January 3rd. And they're, they're sort of updated versions of the same assessment. But unlike past demonstrations, the leaders of the intelligence division were rotating the responsibility for writing these assessments to different analysts, and then were depriving the new analysts, who was newly given this responsibility, of the work done by their colleagues. So they had to start from scratch. And the reason they did this is to to assess these analysts, like how how good were they at researching? How good were they at writing clear uh, assessments? And this is just really a terrible time to be doing this. Um, You know, time is of the essence. There was a avalanche of disturbing messages on social media that people really needed to collect and analyze and make sure their intelligence products were up to date. And so, there's this sort of this weird starting from scratch over and over with different analysts. And, you know, Farnham herself describes this in a select committee interview. So here's where I sort of want to go back to your other question about like, how did I report this out? So I started talking to four former Capitol Police intelligence analysts uh, a little more than a year ago. So in the spring of last year, and I ended up writing a story for Rolling Stone in June of last year but a lot of the things they told me, I could not corroborate. You know, even though they were all telling a similar story, a, a lot of these details weren't backed up by documentary evidence. I had the concern that since the four of them were talking to each other, they could be coordinating their stories. So it wasn't until I was able to read the transcripts from the select committee interviews that came out at the end of last year and in the first days of 2023 that I was able to see many of their claims corroborated by the people they were accusing of, of mismanagement, uh, namely Jack Donahue and Julie Farnham. But there were other elements that were also confirmed by other people in Capitol Police leadership as well. Another development was former Chief Stephen Sun also published his book in January. And so with these new documentary records, I, were, I was able to corroborate a lot of the things these analysts told me about a year ago and tell a deeper story, uh, a very long story, as you've seen, that's a bit of a bureaucratic novella. Yeah, I love calling it a bureaucratic novella, because that really is, I mean, 
it's a story about an organization that is not working on a on a fundamental level. And there's an incredible quote from Farnham that you include that I believe is uh, something she said in, in the course of an, her interview with the January 6th committee, where she says, unfortunately, in the midst of making these major changes, and those are the changes that you've just described, how the division works, we had an insurrection, which is just an incredible sentence, in part because it kind of suggests that, you know, oh, well, the insurrection was just something that happened. We couldn't have foreseen it. There was no way that we could have known that, you know, now would have been a bad time to start shaking up how the division was working. But you obviously, you suggest in your your piece that that was not the case. So what kind of indications were there that, you know, the run up to the electoral count was maybe not the best time to be completely upending the way the division worked? Well, sort of a, a more fundamental uh, issue is, you know, anytime you come into an organization that has a sensitive mission, I think, and if you don't have a lot of pre-existing knowledge about how that organization works, it makes sense to uh, wait a little bit to try to understand how it operates in practice. And, may, and maybe it is a flawed organization. Maybe it needs major changes. But, I mean, they, they came in hot. And they began making these big changes. You sort of layer on that the the personality conflicts, and it became sort of this sort of perfect storm of dysfunction. Uh, now, you know, you have someone like Terry Gaynor, who's a former chief of the Capitol Police. He talked to CNN back in late 2021 about some of these changes. And at the time, we didn't have no anywhere close to the level of detail in terms of what happened. But he said, like, this is a terrible time. You would have to have near perfect implementation to pull this off, you know, during this sort of risky run up to January 6th. Sort of another indication that this was a bad time is even if this didn't happen when President Trump was spewing lies about the election, every time there's a joint session of Congress, People inside the Capitol Police see it as a bit of the, the Super Bowl of you know Capitol Hill events. You're bringing together people from the House of Representatives. You're bringing together people from the Senate. You know, on on a, on a day when you're certifying the election, you have the Vice President there, who's the President of the Senate, to certify the results. So you have a lot of important people in one place together. It's also symbolically important as well as substantively an important session of Congress, a particularly important session of Congress. So it's a big fat target for anyone who could be targeting Congress or the U.S. federal government. And it's just really not the time to say, hey, let's like just rotate people into jobs that they aren't trained to do and just assess them. The time to do that would be after the Super Bowl, you know, and, you know, to continue with the Super Bowl analogy, imagine you've got a new coach installed, you know, in the playoff season who says, you know, we're just going to take the quarterback off the field and we're going to like rotate, you know, players who are normally in the defense into the offense and vice versa. It's just a crazy time to make those kind of changes. And it ended up, causing problems. So another thing that was happening is because 
Farnham and Donahue really distrusted many of the analysts. They themselves, as supervisors, began to take on analytical responsibilities. They began writing some of the language in the assessments rather than editing or reviewing the assessments to make sure they were clear, consistent with each other, and reflected the current state of intelligence that was in their possession. And so this led to the big problems in the January 3rd, 2021 special assessment of, of, of the January 6th protests. This assessment has been written about quite a bit, and there is a very stark warning in that assessment. There's a, there's a big paragraph that talks about how January 6th was going to be very different from you know the the pro maga rallies in November and December of 2020 and that supporters of president Trump would see this as sort of a last ditch attempt to you know swing things in Trump's favor and that congress itself would be the target it's it's a very strong paragraph it's a very stark warning in many ways it was prescient the problem is that was on page 13 of 15 uh, in this report and if you go through the report, it's inconsistent. On page two, it says January 6th is going to be essentially the same as those MAGA rallies in November and December. It also says in different places, people are not expected to march from the ellipse to the Capitol. And that reflects, according to these analysts, the failure of supervisory review. And even if you discount these analysts, the Government Accountability Office and the Bipartisan Senate Review have also said that there were breakdowns in supervisory review that may have contributed to the inconsistencies inside of this intelligence product. Furthermore, the Intelligence Division then issued daily intelligence reports on January 4th, 5th, and 6th. All three of those reports said the risk of violence on January 6th would be low. And so again, there's a failure of supervisory review to make sure uh, within products and between products that there was consistency and that the language in those products really reflected the intelligence that was in the Capitol Police's possession at the time. So, you know, there's just like breakdowns all over the place. And even Farnham herself uh, has admitted in interviews that she should have given those daily intelligence products a closer look and more review. We, you know, we haven't seen as much in the interview transcripts of, of, of Donahue admitting that he should have done a better job reviewing these products, but there were clearly breakdowns. So to sort of like put a little bit of a finer point on what you were just talking about. So really, how much did it matter that the Capitol Police's January 6th threat warnings weren't clear and consistent? So we know, for example, that former Chief Sun says that things would have turned out differently if the threat warnings had been different. But are there reasons to be skeptical of those claims? Like how important was that? Yeah, so this is <laughs> this is a tough question. Um, you know, we'll we'll never know definitively. We we you know, we can't, you know, prove a counterfactual. Certainly it was not ideal that these in, these threat products were inconsistent, they buried warnings, they were not clear. You know, and, and Sun is not the only one who said that there was an intelligence failure. Tim Blodgett, who is, I believe, the deputy house sergeant at, at arms at the time, said these sort of these intelligence failures sort of cascaded into a failure to prepare appropriately 
on that day. So there are many people who who who, who believe these intelligence failures really uh, were key to lack of prep, to the lack of preparation. However, you know anyone who had an internet connection and who was paying attention could probably see that uh, January sixth could could likely turn out bad. Did you need to work in an intelligence agency to know that? Did you have to collect and analyze open source, you know, eight hours a day as part of your normal job to really know that? And Sund was getting calls from people like Senator Mark Warner, you know, before January 6th, where Warner asked, you know, are we prepared? And Sund says, yeah, all, all good. We know we're good to go. Won't be any problems. So... You know, there's some skepticism. I have some skepticism. You know, had had the intelligence division just been much more clear that, like, look, things are going to be terrible, and that would be on if that was on page one of that January third assessment and the assessments that went out in the ensuing days. You know, maybe the stronger, you know, blinking red light would have would have shaken the leadership into taking more aggressive action to prepare. But it's tough to know. There's also, you know, real questions about, you know, implicit bias within federal law enforcement, including the Capitol Police. You know, the Capitol Police has, you know, been beset with allegations over the years that it's discriminated against Black officers. And and there was a great story by ProPublica a few weeks after January 6th, where they talked to a number of officers you know, who, who anonymously said, look, if the crowd on January 6th would have been a majority or a largely black or brown crowd, it might have been a very different day. We would have been better prepared. We would have responded more aggressively. So it's really hard to know if you look at comments by the chief investigative counsel, uh, Tim Heafy, who worked on the House Select Committee, you know, he says that this really wasn't a problem with intelligence. It wasn't an intelligence failure. It was a failure to operationalize the intelligence and that enough intelligence was in the possession of law enforcement leaders to, to prepare better. So it could be, it, it may have made a difference. How big of a difference? We'll never know. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me 
their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, I think the the distinction between the sort of whether or not there needed to be more intelligence and and whether or not there needed to be more action on the existing intelligence is is really a crucial one and one that comes up again and again. I mean, and there's also, for me, what you're describing is is also a question of, you know, 
a failure of gathering information versus a failure of communicating that information within and between agencies in addition to then acting on it. Um, you know, like you said, that this material is is buried in the the middle of a, a report. It's maybe not, you know, flagged to people as directly as they would like it to be. I mean, to what extent is the sort of failure of communication also part of the story here? Oh, I think it's 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 very front and center. And so the question is, why was it so poorly communicated? Why were these threat products so inconsistent? And, you know, I, I, I think after having spent months of reviewing transcripts and talking to insiders that you had sort of this, you had a lot of factors. You had people who were newly installed in these important positions in the intelligence division, Donahue and Farnham. You know, they both and their select committee interviews I think, you know, Farnham said, you know, I was on my job, on the job for 72 days. Uh, That that doesn't count. I think that counts weekends, you know, on January 6th. And Farnham, Donahue had been on the job for something like 50 days on January 6th. So they were new and they were not insiders who were promoted from within. They came from from elsewhere. Then you have this tension with their staff, the shakeups. That certainly didn't help anything. And... Yeah, there's one interesting passage in Farnham's select committee interview where she is asked, um, you know, should you have you know raised concerns more aggressively uh, within the Capitol Police? And she says, look, I was new. I didn't want to ruffle people's feathers. If this happened now, I would be much more vocal and aggressive. And so there's like very human dynamics here. And, you know, I think whenever there's a sort of you know, breakdown. You know, you see this at Waco. You know, back in the '90s, where the the negotiators, the hostage negotiators, don't have a great line of communication with the tactical team, and they're not on the same page. And yeah, so you know, these kind of communication and coordination breakdowns can be very consequential, even though they may seem, you know, very sometimes petty and small ball, but they can, you know, they can have huge impacts on the performance of organizations. And that's part of the story of January 6th is this dysfunction inside of the intelligence division. There are also questions about other people outside of the intelligence division, but within the Capitol Police and how good of a job they did um, either acting upon the intelligence and also sharing the intelligence. So within the Capitol Police, there's a policy that says the head of the intelligence division is responsible for sharing intelligence throughout the Capitol Police. But in practice, this responsibility really was falling on uh, the then deputy uh, chief, Sean Gallagher. You know, he was seen as the main conduit for sharing information throughout the Capitol Police. Uh, and, you know, Farnham and Donahue, you know, really relied on him. And one of the big breakdowns that we haven't talked about is a lot of the rank and file and sort of the the first line supervisors throughout the Capitol Police were completely unaware of that January 3rd assessment, not to mention that paragraph that was buried on page 13 within that assessment. Uh, Farnham and Donahue did brief some people in Capitol Police leadership on January 4th, and they say that they really stressed that warning that was on page 13 during that briefing 
Unfortunately, Chief Sund was not at that briefing. Uh, Sund says he was not invited, and that may speak to some strange leadership dysfunction within the Capitol Police, or Sund may have elected not to be invited, or maybe it wasn't his practice to be invited. I don't know the answer to that. But there are all sorts of problems, but communication of the known intelligence is clearly one of the big breakdowns. So you both in the answer to Quintus' last question and then earlier were talking about um, former Chief Sund. And I'm curious if you think sort of the reporting um, that you and analysis that you did in this report absolves Chief former Chief Sund of blame for January 6th. And sort of what about other components of the capital security bureaucracy? So the the answer is no. I don't think it absolves. Uh, I, I don't think Sund is off the hook here. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, he was the head of the Capitol Police. He was getting calls from congressional leaders in the days before January 6th. Are we prepared? You know, there are a lot of obvious, very public signs that the day was going to turn out bad. Uh, Sund was, you know, going around telling people, this is an all hands on deck situation, but he didn't recall people uh, who were out on leave, you know, for vacation or, or, or for other reasons. The force that day was under equipped. You know, people didn't have the body armor and helmets that they should have had if they were truly expecting, you know, a high potential for violence that day. So, you know, Sun at the end of the day does bear some responsibility for, you know, the the inadequate law enforcement preparation that day. Like, there's zero question in my mind. You know, Sund has, you know, he's tried to deflect blame. He says that, you know, the biggest intelligence failure that day was from inside the Capitol Police. I think, you know, there's, there's there are a lot of reasons to debate that. But Sund is not off the hook. But I think Sund does point out some problems with the Intelligence Division's performance that are fair criticisms that haven't received the attention that they should receive in the public domain and didn't really get in the House Select Committee's report, even though those issues were probed to some extent during the interviews of of officials. So I want to go back to this question of of open source intelligence, there's a a quote you have from a former Capitol Police intelligence analyst who said that uh, the dismantling of the the division's open source section was, and I quote, the biggest and most detrimental change um, that was made in the the run-up to January 6th. And the question of what agencies were and weren't doing with open source intelligence is something that I've had a bee in my bonnet about, I will admit, um, including what appears to be the FBI's sort of real failure to incorporate open source intelligence into their analysis of what was happening in the run-up. So I'm curious for your assessment of how the intelligence problems that the Capitol Police Intelligence Division was struggling with were different or similar to those involving the FBI, also DHS, you know, particularly when it comes to open source intelligence, but other issues that might crop up as well. So if I don't address your full question, <laughs> come back to me. There, there, I mean, there's there's a lot to to, to deal with. Um, so the the analyst who who gave me that quote, his name's you know Eric Hoare. He you know his he had been with the Capitol Police for uh, more than a dozen years, um, I believe eighteen years, and he was very experienced, very well trained. 
And the way the Capitol Police Intelligence Division has operated is it sort of you know, has very scarce resources. At the time, it was only about a dozen analysts. And they would pivot to different priorities, you know, depending on, you know, the changing circumstances of the time. So when there's a big demonstration being planned at the Capitol, that would often become their number one priority. During times when there weren't major protests at the Capitol, they would often be working with others within the Capitol Police to run down, you know, the numerous threats made to lawmakers, you know, that are made almost every single day of the year. And when Donahue and Farnham came on, uh, and, and Farnham speaks to this in her select committee interview, she says you had the open source section and then you had another section in the intelligence division. And she sort of you know, collapsed these different sections together. And she said it was a small team. It didn't really matter. You know, She said she would later come to learn that there were some personality disputes between those sections, which is why they were created. But there's more to the story. So... Normally, the open source section would be focused on researching threats related to upcoming demonstrations. And when Donahue and Farnham came on, they really shut that down. They said, look, we want you to prioritize helping the Capitol Police close out this really big backlog of threat cases. And most of those threat cases had nothing to do with January 6th. And you know, and I published some of these emails as part of my story. Uh, and they said, you know, if you um, want to deviate uh, from closing out those threat cases, you need to get an explicit assignment from us. And they did assign a few things to some of their analysts in the run up to January 6th. Retrospectively, Farnham told the select committee, we should have been doing proactive open source searches on websites like the Donald Win, Dot Win, uh, Twitter, other parlor, these other sites like Facebook, uh, where a lot of people were calling on protesters to be violent on January 6th. And a select committee staffer then asked her after she said, we should have been conducting those proactive open source searches. And they said, well, who did the assigning? And she said, well, I did. So, there's this sort of like, this is where the personality dispute really kind of like really shut down the open source section. And Farnham and Donahue had a really dim view of what their analysts could do, didn't trust them and didn't let them take the initiative and really had them focus on addressing this backlog, which mostly didn't have anything to do with January 6th. So there's some like really specific reasons why the open source collection largely ended at the Capitol Police. They still received information coming in from elsewhere, such as the FBI or DHS. The NYPD even at, at one point shared information with the Capitol Police in, in advance of January 6th. But its own open source collection significantly ended uh, in the weeks before January 6th. Then you have a place like, you know, the Office of Intelligence and Analysis at DHS. And while they did issue this sort of like broader warning in, I believe, December of 2020 about, you know, post-election related violence and tensions, they never issued a warning specific to January 6th or the Capitol complex. Uh, 
And you know, there's a lot of complicated reasons why INA at DHS didn't really raise a warning. Uh, one of those factors may have been this sort of chilling effect from earlier in 2020 when the former head of INA was removed by then acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf. And there's an inspector general report from the Department of Homeland Security that talks about that being a factor at the Office of Intelligence and Analysis and why they may have been wary of raising a warning connected to sort of to politics, basically. Because earlier in 2020, in the summer of 2020, you had all those protests in Portland and INA you know, was accused by, by your colleague. Uh, and he got documents that showed that INA was really crossing the line and compiling dossiers on uh, protesters and journalists. And, you know, I know that former INA leader, Brian Murphy, has, you know, defended his actions and said that they were twisted. And, you know, I, I really don't take a position on, you know, what Murphy did or did not do, but clearly there was fallout at INA. The FBI, in my opinion, is is more of a black box. I feel like we know the least about the breakdowns inside the FBI. We know the Norfolk Field Office on the evening of January 5th issued a warning based on things they were seeing on social media. You know, it got sent to the Capitol Police among other agencies that evening. It's a, a little late to prepare, but the bigger question is why the FBI writ large or the Washington Field Office of the FBI didn't issue a warning before January 6th, especially a few days before January 6th. Uh, even though they were tracking suspected de- domestic terrorists who were traveling to DC for the protests, they had even dissuaded some people from attending protests on January 6th and had informants inside groups like the Proud Boys. So the breakdowns inside of the FBI are the most bewildering to me. Yeah, and for for those who aren't familiar, uh, what you're referencing with IADA surveillance of our colleague is our our editor-in-chief, Benjamin Wittes, who's uh, written about his experience discovering that his tweets were uh, collected by by INA. I should also say that we have published an article by Brian Murphy sort of telling his side of the story, so listeners can take a a look for that if if they so desire. Um, But Molly, let me turn it over to you. Sure. So um, something that you both write about in the report and have talked about a little bit already, but I'd like to dig into a little bit more, is the possibility that bias affected the Capitol Police's handling of the intelligence in advance of January 6th. Um, And that is, as we've just been talking about, also an issue that's come up regarding why agencies like DHS and the FBI didn't take the threat seriously. So what's your read of the evidence that bias did or didn't play a role here? So this is still, I think, one of the big, you know, unanswered questions about all of this. I mean, uh, a lot of people, including, you know, then President-elect Joe Biden commented in the immediate wake of January 6th that, you know, had the crowd been, you know, a largely black crowd on January 6th, you know, he imagines that day would have turned out differently. The former head of the D.C. National Guard, William Walker, has, you know, made similar remarks. A lot of people have. And, you know, to break it down is, are they reacting super aggressively when the intelligence doesn't say that there's going to be much of a threat and then really holding back when the intelligence 
indicates there's going to be a, a threat, but it's a, a largely white crowd. And this question was probed by staffers on the House Select Committee. It comes up in some interviews. It comes up in their interview with Stephen Sund, who is the former chief of the Capitol Police. They interviewed um, former deputy director of the FBI, David Bowditch, asking him questions about that, uh, especially whether or not there was a a disparity in the federal response reacting to the racial justice protests in the summer of 2020 versus the federal preparation or response on January 6th in reaction to supporters of then President Trump. I think there's enough smoke to wonder if there's fire here. You know, Bowditch is is interesting because he sent this email in the summer of 2020, I believe in June of 2020, to some folks within the FBI. And the New York Times got a hold of this email and reported on this at the time, where he said, you know, pull out all the stops, let's get super aggressive with our open source research to identify threats, uh, you know, involving Black Lives Matter protests. You obviously had the grossly excessive use of force um, in Lafayette Square involving federal agencies across the street from the White House, you know, hours after, you know, Trump told government officials to, you know, get tough on, on Black Lives Matter protesters and take back their streets. So, you know, there's this just, you know, it's kind of the elephant in the room, really, when you, you get into this is, you know, were, were they holding back for either, either or, or racial or political bias? Were they less willing to imagine that Republicans could act this way? Um, you know, we know law enforcement, you know, tends to be conservative, you know, in terms of their politics. So, as I mentioned, the House Select Committee on the staff level probed this to some degree in their interviews, but this is nowhere in the Select Committee's final report. And shortly before the select committee published its final report, there were articles in the Washington Post and, and a few other places where you know, numerous staffers who worked on the select committee expressed frustration with uh, notably rep- then Representative Liz Cheney's opposition to including material that, that really you know, strayed far beyond putting Trump under a microscope. So uh, you know, obviously... You know, the Trump factor was the overriding concern of the select committee, and rightfully so. But there are these other big issues that are more systemic in nature, arguably, you know, that could that could cause problems down the road if they're not adequately addressed. So to sort of shift from looking backwards to um, sort of looking at what's happened since the 6th and then looking forward, um, how uh, has the Capitol Police's approach to intelligence changed for the better since January 6th? What do you see as the big source of the challenges and what are some additional ways that we can still improve oversight of the Capitol Police? Almost immediately after January 6th, there was a more direct line of communication between the leaders of the intelligence division, uh, Donahue and Farnham. They started to brief larger groups of Capitol Police officers directly, as opposed to going through a number of intermediaries. That helped to sort of build a better relationship between the rank and file and the intelligence division. They've also 
grown the ranks of the intelligence division. Uh, I believe the most recent GAO report said that there are about 30 analysts uh, and staffers that work in that division up from 12 on the day of January 6th. So they have more capacity. They're taken more seriously. They have cut out a lot of the intermediaries um, that can sometimes hinder the flow of information. And I think when you have that direct line of communication, uh, it can also benefit the intelligence division. They may learn how to better communicate to the force because they're hearing things from the horse's mouth, so to speak. One of the things they've dragged their feet on is as of late last year, at least, the GAO said they still did not have a policy on sharing information across the Capitol Police, which is a really bizarre thing to drag your feet on because that was such a central breakdown related to January 6th. You know, I asked the Capitol Police, you know, about a week before my story was published uh, about that issue. I really didn't get I didn't get an answer from the Capitol Police on whether or not they finally have finalized uh, a policy on on sharing information within the force. That may have changed, but I, I just don't know. As of late last year, it was still an outstanding issue. The other thing I'd be interested in hearing about looking even more uh, towards the future is what else can Congress do to continue to improve oversight of the Capitol Police? So the main committees that oversee the Capitol Police are the House Administration Committee and the Senate Rules Committee. I think one of the problems with the Capitol Police is they have an inspector general, but its reports are not public. So unlike inspectors generals at virtually every other federal agency, you know, the public and and frankly, Congress at large may not know about findings of deficiencies within the Capitol Police um, because those findings are kept within a small circle. And I mean, the reality is, you know, press coverage of watchdog report findings often (laughs) reaches you know, decision makers much better than the actual underlying report. So, you know, making some of these Capitol Police Inspector General uh, reports public, or at least a, a public version of those reports, I think would be a step forward. One thing that the the Senate Rules Committee did uh, in the wake of January 6th is it would make the summaries of Capitol Police IG reports public that were related to January 6th. It didn't make the full reports public, but it made at least the summaries, the executive summaries of those reports public. So that was a step in the right direction. And it's something we should make a regular practice uh, with the Capitol Police IG. Um, So that's one thing that could strengthen congressional oversight of the Capitol Police is, is just a lot more transparency around its watchdog reports. Another thing that would help is The Capitol Police workforce does not have the kinds of whistleblower protections the vast majority of federal workers have. Now, the Capitol Police is part of the legislative branch and and staffers on the House and Senate side also don't have robust whistleblower protections. There is a Capitol Police policy on the book that uh, prohibits retaliation. And there's also a statute that prohibits retaliation if a Capitol Police officer or employee goes to the Capitol Police IG. But they don't have a law that protects uh, disclosures to congressional committees, for instance, or the press. 
if you know the disclosures aren't sensitive in nature. And so there's sort of this disparity in whistleblower protections if you look at the vast majority of the federal workforce versus the Capitol Police workforce. Uh, you know, FBI employees, DHS employees, they have far better protections than Capitol Police employees do. And so improving those protections could help augment congressional oversight because you may have people more willing to take a risk and make a disclosure if they believe they're seeing gross mismanagement or other problems that could put the Capitol Police's mission at risk. Well, Nick, I think we will leave it there. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. And I I appreciate all the questions. There There were some challenging ones. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. This podcast was edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.